Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jay Hoffman. Based in New York, by day, Jay is lead developer at Reactive Studios, an agile VIP WordPress studio that is one of just 13 WordPress.com VIP service partners globally. Jay is the author of the book, The History of the Web, Volume 1, which you can find at leanpub.com slash webhistory. The book is based on Jay's popular history of the web newsletter, which is based on years of his research into and passion for the web, which presents particular challenges to historians, particularly because of its rapidly changing and in many ways ephemeral nature. You can follow Follow Jay on Twitter at Jay underscore Hoffman, and you can sign up for his newsletter at thehistoryoftheweb.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jay's background and career a little bit, uh, starting and maintaining a popular newsletter, his book, and uh, most importantly, of course, the history of the web and the challenges the web presents to historians, some of the more interesting stories that he's researched, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience self-publishing. So thank you, Jay, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thank you for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was yeah. wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers. Sure, yeah. So um, I grew up in New York, uh, not far from where I live right now, um, a little bit far outside of New York City in a place called Long Island. Um, but interesting computers kind of came really, really early for me. I was kind of playing around with computers in middle school and starting to build my own back when that was like a popular thing to do or, uh, you know, kind of customize your own computer. I think I actually kind of came to into it from the realm of film, uh, which has always been an interest of mine. It's something I studied a little bit. Um, and in, in my high school, there was actually a film class it was very, very small. Um, but we had a, a computer, a few computers, and uh, that's where I learned animation. And from the animations that I created – uh, high school or so, I created my first website to, to put those out and people loved it. And then I went to college and I needed some money. And so a few people were able to pay me to make their websites and then more of that uh, and graduated college and just kind of kept going. I, it was not, it's interesting because I think when I started, it wasn't a career. I mean, it was something people were starting to do, but it wasn't, I had no awareness that it was a, like a full-time career. And then by the time I got out of college, it was actually starting to become a really refined profession. And so now I've been doing that for a little over a decade now. And what was your first paid job working on the web? Yeah. So I, my first job ever was at uh, Sesame Street or Sesame Workshop, which is the nonprofit that produces the Sesame Street and a couple other uh, things. Yeah, they actually hired me um, really early on to work in the marketing department and kind of grew there. I got to work with this really great kind of small team that was tailored towards adults, which is obviously not, I mean, that's not the most common Sesame Street uh, use case, but um, it was fun. And, and we, we built, you know, sort of corporate sites, but also kind of a lot of fun experiments over the years. Um, so that's where I started. And after that, I worked uh, at Random House, which is uh, the publishing uh, house. And for the last few years, it's been uh, Reactive Studios, which is a really, really small kind of lean development agency. I've been loving it. And uh, uh, since it's in the publishing industry, it's, a, of course, of particular interest to me. Um, what what yeah. did you do for Random House? So uh, they maintain a few kind of reader-focused blogs, and my job was basically to maintain those. They were mostly on WordPress, and so a lot of my work was maintaining and developing those sites and creating new features and a couple of more experimental kind of things. This is 
I, I guess probably jumping ahead a little bit in terms of you know internet timelines or I should yeah. say web web timelines. But um, so you worked for uh, basically a company that produced television shows, and you <laughs> yeah. worked for a company that produced books. Yeah. Uh, w- was there a sense at the time, because and not, but not on things that had to do with distributing that content, yes, the, the, yeah. their main content specifically over the web. And I'm, I'm curious, did, did you get the sense at either company that they were concerned that the web was a threat to their core business when they started getting into doing these, these other things? I've been really fortunate to work with people that have kind of put the web as a foregone conclusion uh, before I even started there. I think... Sesame Street in particular is very, very good about embracing the digital generation, uh, you know, generation and, and sort of the way that things are distributed now. They have a core mission, which is to reach as many kids as possible. And so they look at something like YouTube or, uh, you know, digital platforms or digital experiments as a way of doing that rather than a hindrance or possibly a, you know, their business model is they I mean, they are a nonprofit. Um, so I, I think. They, they really embraced that. Um, and with Random House, I, I happen to work with a group of people that that was our job was to explore the fringes of the web and try to figure out, you know, what, how we can reach people in, in different ways. Just going back in time a little bit, um, one thing yeah. I was just reminded of in your story that you sort of politely glossed over, I think, was the sort of humorous nature of your first yeah. venture into the web. I, I've talked, I've interviewed a couple of people on this website or on this podcast, sorry, who got their start in mischief, uh, particularly yeah. in school. Uh, and so I was mm-hmm. wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing your. Sure. Yeah. It's, I, it's funny because I, I have, to, I've talked to quite a few people about their own origin stories. And I think the most common thing you hear is a band website. Um, after that, it's kind of like, fan sites or kind of experimental sites. Mine was in that vein. One of my first few sites was banned, uh, my band's website, which is now defunct, thankfully. Um, before that, the very first website I ever did actually came when I was in high school. Uh, there was a, a policy that was instituted by our principal that said nobody could wear hoodies during school. Really, I'm still very unclear about why that was the case, but um, just I created to, just a. Just to interject, people can't see, but Jay's wearing a hoodie right now. So I'm we- <laughs> still, still protesting. <laughs> Who knew that ago. one day I would get a, a a job where I could do it all the time? Um, yeah, so that was the the school policy. So I made a flash animation. It was 15 seconds or 30 seconds that kind of poked fun at the whole idea and. I created the website so that I could tell people like, hey, go to this website and view this animation. And then from there, I created a few. This is like in the Newgrounds times. I was kind of inspired by that and a few games and stuff like that. Uh, I think I'll have some questions for you about Flash in the future. Yeah, that sure. I imagine many people listening might not have even, even heard of, which is actually going to be hopefully a theme that I can touch on or we can touch on. A bit yeah. in this in this podcast, but uh, before we get to the issue of the web, or the the subject of the web and its history, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, WordPress. Um, mm-hmm. I think this WordPress is something that I think a lot of people really don't quite grasp its its reach. And I was wondering if yeah. you could explain a little bit about some of the ways that WordPress is used that people might not be familiar with. Sure. Yeah, I think some of the biggest confusion around WordPress is probably that there are really two entities uh, when you're dealing with it. It's WordPress.com and WordPress.org is generally how you can think about it. WordPress.com is a kind of site builder um, in the vein of Squarespace or Wix or something like that. If if you've heard of it, it lets you kind of create your own website, buy a domain, all that stuff. It is a service 
that is run by the creator of the software WordPress, which is hosted on WordPress.org, which anybody in the world, it's open source, which means anybody can download it, uh, customize it. There's also, there's a whole ecosystem around it. That is the more common use of WordPress and current estimates put it about 25 to 30% of the web actually runs on top of a, a WordPress, uh, on the WordPress server or uh, software. Yeah. So it's a huge chunk of the web. If you kind of spend any time in the web development world, it's definitely something that you're going to, you know, here, it provides a lot of tools for not only creating sites, but at this point it's being used, uh, you know, for applications and, uh, all sorts of different things. So, you know, at my agency, we get to do lots of very, very advanced things with WordPress, but the whole idea behind it is, you and me, anybody can download it, set up your website. It's got what's called the famous five minute install. Like you can get it kind of up and running in no time. It it's core. I think principle is really to democratize publishing, uh, which it's been (laughs) fairly successful at doing over the years. Yeah. I think, uh, we might talk a little bit about that subject in a bit as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just, just before we move on to, to that, um, uh, can you give an example of an advanced use of WordPress that a studio like yours would, would work on? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, by that, I mean, sort of sites that aren't, I think there's a old, there's this old thought process that goes along with WordPress that is really only for simple blogs or simple sites. And what we really create is very, is entire, uh, platforms or applications using the the software so it really you know runs the gamut yeah did the the new york times run on wordpress or does it still do you know that's a good question i know that there's a good chunk of it does um i'm not too sure uh it's got a lot of different sort of components to it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay uh so you started the history of the web newsletter i believe in early 2017 Um, yeah and i wanted to ask you what was the what inspired you to begin the project This goes back a, a while. I mean, so I was um, I was a history major in college, and I wrote a few thesis papers and really got into research and what that takes. And it's always been an interest of mine. Generally, when I got out of college, I just I poked around the history of the web just as a way of you know exploring my own passion. And it's it's a very interesting story. It's fascinating to me because it's so young. I mean, we're still 30 years or under 30 years in terms of how long the web has been around. And yet, uh, the sand is constantly shifting beneath our feet and we're, it's, we're losing things all the time. So I started to just kind of, uh, research things and, and compile a few notes. And I, I talked to a couple of professors and, and web practitioners and just people that have been around for a long time. And, I increasingly got the sense that nobody was really doing much research about it. I mean, there was a couple of efforts here and there, but there wasn't any kind of concerted effort that I could see. And so I, I, I thought about a few different ideas. Uh, a book actually early on was was an idea that I wanted to explore, but decided that for time reasons and also just to get something out and to start exploring, you know, the question of is anybody else interested in what I'm interested in, which is, I think, a very common question. I just put out a newsletter and I said, look, I'm going to do the research. I'm going to chunk up that research and each week I'll pull something out and I'll tell a cool story. And if you like it, subscribe. Uh, and that was, that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. 
Um, I'm in the kind of process of thinking through a few different ways to expand that. Um, but that's generally been how I came to it. So the, the research part has been going on for a decade. Um, the writing part of it has been the last couple of years. Thanks very much for that great explanation. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it leads me to a couple of questions, uh, and it's sort of hard for me to know which to ask in advance because as the challenge as a historian of, of dealing with something like the internet is, I think, in, some, in many ways unique. But I guess before I can talk to you about that, I need to ask you about, let's say, the, what's the difference between the internet and the World Wide Web? Yeah, sure. So the internet dates back to more like the 70s, late, well, early 80s. And it actually started as a... Um, a government research project, and I won't get into all the nerdy particulars, but it basically is the it is the pipes that run between computers. It is the way in which computers connect to one another. It is a collection of different technologies that allow computers to talk to one another. Uh, the web came a little bit later, really early 90s, late 80s, uh, and it was built on top of the internet. It is a layer on top of the internet that uh, makes it easier for me and you to connect to the internet and to, um, more importantly, and I think this is something we'll definitely talk about, publish on the internet. Um, and there's a lot, there's a few different components to the web that that allow it to do that. But I think what's really interesting is that, and uh, you know. When it first came out, it was not so clear that the web was going to be the way that everybody connects to the Internet, which is mostly true these days. Uh, there was a lot of competing proto uh, protocols, technologies that were emerging at the time that that really had some features that the web didn't. But, but the, you know, the web had some early advantages uh, that, that let it overtake it. Yeah, you write, you write on your website, and I'm just going to do a little quote here. Um, quote, the web's history is fairly unique. It is at once extremely ephemeral and still nascent. The web was born as a document-based medium. One of the features of this medium was that documents can disappear, and they often do. So even as the web rapidly advances, pieces of, pieces of it get lost over time. There's a couple of interesting sort of threads there to pull on, one of which is the, the sense that the web was born as a document-based medium yeah. uh, invented by Tim Berners-Lee at CERN. So I was wondering if you could just take a couple of minutes to tell that story. Yeah, sure. So CERN, for those that don't know, they're the folks that created the Large Hadron Collider that uh, you know was finished, I think, a few years ago. They are a physics lab, essentially, based in uh, Switzerland. Um, and they, so Tim Berners-Lee worked there. He was a computer scientist. And it's an interesting story because he had this dream of the web really early on. I mean, I think in the, by the mid-80s, it was kind of something that he wanted to do. He wanted basically a way for anybody to read something or publish something on the Internet. That was kind of his goal. But he knew that CERN wasn't going to just, like, approve a random project, although they were very, like, they're very research-based, R&D-based, so they, they are, they'll enable their employees to explore things. So what he did instead was he pitched them a project that allowed everybody in CERN to publish their documentation or to publish their academic papers uh, in a way that was indexable, searchable, easily accessed by anybody on any computer. The biggest problem being that somebody over here might have a Windows machine, someone over here might have a Linux machine, and, and et cetera, and connecting those computers was a problem. So the web was actually 
first created as a way for a bunch of academics to share documents with one another, um, really like uh, essentially a phone book with uh, a few advanced listings on it. And that was how Tim Berners-Lee kind of snuck the idea of the web into CERN. And eventually, um, a few years later, he convinced CERN, and this is a kind of a huge decision. It was kind of landmark in why we all use the web. He convinced CERN to release it into the public domain, which means nobody owns the web. The web owns the web, and that's how, what allowed it to sort of spread. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that it began, uh, the excuse for it was a phone book. Uh, yeah. But the reason for it was a library, um, yeah. which is something that I think, you know, people who we don't really use anything other than our phones for, for phoning anymore. We don't have separate, separate phone books. And, you know, most of us use the web for all kinds of things besides storing documents or reading sort of something that's formally understood to be distinct as a document. And so it's just very interesting that it, that it had that, that beginning. So with that, with that stage set, um, yeah. uh, as a historian, how do you go about finding in the information that you use as the basis of your newsletter and, and, and your, the content for your book. So I will say like, you know, I did research papers that were from, you know, that covered a period of time from 500 years ago, thousands of years ago, things like that. Right. So I have a couple of advantages over that. The first being that basically everything I need is digital. It's not all findable because, uh, uh, again, obviously a lot of things have been have just disappeared over time, although there are kind of ways around that. Um, so that's one advantage I have is that I can do it from my computer at home. Uh, the other advantage being that most of the people that started the web are still alive today and really, really excited about the web. So I've managed to reach out and talk to a lot of people about that. And um, they've given me a bit of a perspective on what things were like early on and, and sort of how things have evolved over time. The trick for me is really getting the facts right. Uh, there's a lot of opinions. There's not really like a, you know, a historical record to speak of. So it's really going through people's opinions, going through the way that people saw the web with today's perspective and kind of removing that, that modern perspective and, and trying to put that, that new way of thinking on. And when it was released to the public by CERN, who were the first people to kind of pick up on, on the web and yeah. using it? So, you know, early on, the earliest examples of websites that you'd find were non-commercial academic usage. So you saw a lot of universities just publish a website, which was their own phone book. Uh, you saw some government agencies start to publish public records and things like that. They're always looking for new ways to sort of store that um, so they would get on the, the web. But I would say in the first couple of years, what you started to see was people just experimenting a lot. Nobody really knew what we could do uh, and, and what was possible with the web. So you started to see people do, there was like a web comic that really early on, it was, it was, this was an academic, it was a professor somewhere, but he also happened to be a cartoonist and he threw his, his web comic up on the web and people really liked that. And then somebody experimented with a, a magazine and, you know, other people experimented with early animations and things like that. And really by 1995 or so, you started to see web designs and web experiments. And it was this sense of like this indie web, um, which eventually got glossed over by a, a real commercialization boom, which is, you know, sort of the dot-com error. 
which uh, I'm sure we could talk about if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's interesting. I it, it was at least for me quite a challenge to try to think about how to structure this interview, and maybe that's been yeah. reflected in a bit of the the meandering so far, uh, because there's, oh, just, I like there's it. just so much to to try and grasp. And so I guess for the next part of the interview, I'd kind of like to ask about various themes and sort of not just sure not just follow random issues through the temporal timeline. <laughs> Uh, yeah. but different themes through their timelines. Um, and so, you know, in the beginning was the word, the, the, the internet was about text and it was about, you know, looking at texts and communicating with text. When, yeah. when did images and some, something that we, there's so many things that we just take for granted, which is, I guess, kind of what I'm trying to get at in this part of the interview. When, when was the first image viewable yeah. on the, on the web? So there was a lot of conversation about how media in general should be handled. There was this understanding among the innovators of the web that in, if it was going to go anywhere, media was going to be a big component of that. And really the reason we didn't see like a lot of images and video early on was bandwidth more than anything else. So the, the imagination was there. It's just the, how that was going to be represented was a little bit of a in-the-air question. So you, you started to see images pretty early on, but the way that it worked was you would actually like click it and it would open in a new window, right? So um, the first time you ever saw an inline image, which again is something we see, I don't know, a million times a day and we never even think about, uh, is with a browser called Mosaic, um, which kind of changed everything it eventually became netscape navigator which is probably something a lot of people are familiar with and it is one of the first well netscape navigator was the first commercial browser meaning it was the first browser to be sold right all the browsers before that were basically experiments that were uh, cool but very hard to set up you needed to have technical know-how to download it and like you had to run a few commands even just to get it installed on your computer and then mosaic came around and it was like you download it install it you can run it on any computer it's got inline images which is like insane it's got colors it's got all sorts of great things and then that's where people got a lot of inspiration to start experimenting with the with the different medium so that's in the mid 90s you're starting to see that and uh, did GIFs appear around that time? And is that how the word is pronounced? Uh, yeah, I say GIFs. <laughs> I, I think canonically we can say that. Um, yeah, actually, yeah. It's funny because it was used because it's a lightweight format. I mean, it's it's a you can create a GIF and it's uh, incredibly small size. Um, and that's why people used it. And then they were like, hey, you can make things move with it. Um, if you were uh, a web designer or a developer in the early days, you probably remember the under construction GIFs and the, uh, you know, all sorts of flashing tags and things like that. And I'm curious about audio. Uh, yeah. There's, I guess there's two parts to that. One is downloading it uh, from mm -hmm. the web and the other is uh, listening to it on the web. Yeah. Uh, when, what, what could people use Mosaic or Netscape to listen to music? Uh, download if yes. I mean, I think so. One of the earliest websites was called the Internet Underground Music Archive, and it actually started as an FTP server in the 80s. Uh, but once they saw the web, they they were kind of enamored with it, and they moved all of their files to the to the web. And what it basically was was any band in the world could send them files. They would encode those files in such a way that they could be downloaded fairly easily on the web, and then they would put them up for free. And it was just like a way to to trade basically underground mixtapes. Um, and you got lots of cool bands kind of coming on and and starting out there. Uh, so yeah, that was the, that was definitely around. 
Um, I had a, an interesting web experience. I was in Delhi in 1995, and a friend of mine's uncle had a connection at Microsoft, so I got to be at the Indian launch, a formal launch of Microsoft Windows wow. 95. With and, Internet Explorer. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I remember being totally awestruck by the fact that you could click play and watch a Weezer video. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. On the computer. Yeah. Uh, when did, do you have an idea of when people first could watch video on the web? On the, on the web? Um, yeah. Yeah. So there were early attempts to try, you know, you can make downloads available. If anybody remembers the early days of the web, let's say before broadband, uh, you have to sit there for a while to download something. Um, but there was a lot more experiments with interactivity and animation. So like motion on the web in a way that wasn't strictly video. And the idea being that I think a lot of people even early on saw the web as it was an interactive medium. So it was something that when you click something, if you had this visceral response, that was eye opening for a lot of people when you click something and, and, and the you know, the button bounced on the page. And it was like, wow, just never seen anything like that. Um, so there was a lot of experiments with with motion, with little tiny bits of interactivity. Actually, the in the mid to late 90s, you probably saw more experiments with things flashing around the page and jumping in and all sorts of craziness than you do now because I think web design is a little bit more refined and constrained now, probably much to, you know, I think users tend to like that when they're just trying to get something done. But in the early days, you, you, you know, you can make a text bounce all around or you, if you could do that, it was like a way of showing off like, Hey, look what, what this cool thing my website can do. Yeah. You're, you're reminding me, I just got an email in comic sans yesterday. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's funny. We, we all, we all make fun of comic sans now. Uh, but you're, you're reminding me that like there was this playfulness, uh, at the beginning of the web that was sort of pervasive. Uh, yeah. people, people were, as you say, just so excited to be able to, you know, click things and make things happen. I have a, a philosopher friend who talks about how one of the reasons people love guns so much is that it allows you to do something at a distance. And there's just something really primal about, about that. And being able to exert your influence on this thing is one of the things that makes the web compelling. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's, that's what's the most fascinating part of the web for me. And I think a lot of times in the narrative that I'm telling that kind of my, my perspective and my opinion on that probably leaks out because I really do see the turn of the web towards the commercialization as maybe something being lost. Um, I try not to sort of color my my entries too much with that. But it, but for me, that that sort of early experimentation and that early uh, just innovation was uh, incredible. And it really felt like there were no limits at that time, like really we could do anything with this new tool. Yeah, actually, that, that leads me to, I guess, the next theme I'd like to cover. So now that we've, we've sort of very briefly covered formats and the yeah. various formats that we'd be familiar with on the web, I wanted to talk about commerce. Um, when did, well, first of all, you, you actually mentioned this briefly. It used to be that in order to use the web as a, as a sort of normal, non-technical person, you had to go literally put on your coat, put on your shoes and go to the store and buy a piece of cardboard shrink wrapped with a disc in it that contained the software that you were going to use. And then you had to go home and you had to install it. Um, when did that era end? Yeah. So Microsoft actually uh, changed that. They bundled a browser 
in Microsoft Internet Explorer, which I'm sure everybody is likely somewhat familiar with. Uh, they bundled it for free in their operating system. So when you downloaded Microsoft, you got Internet Explorer for free. Um, it was actually the subject of a lawsuit, uh, antitrust lawsuit, because you know the the question was if they're giving away their browser for free, then are they monopolizing basically the uh, the internet? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just just to, just for a moment, I'll, I'll actually be another theme will be government. So let's yeah, talk about that. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, of course, um, yeah. But when micro, when when Internet Explorer came out, it really it, it changed a lot. It, I think Netscape was still the, the most popular browser at the time. There was a few technologies that were needed in order to make um, something like commerce available even or possible, let's say. And Internet Explorer and Netscape are the first to actually explore those technologies. So by the sort of late 90s, you uh, yeah, mid to more like late 90s, you really started to see a lot of advanced technologies enter the browser um, and new capabilities, which enabled kind of the next generation of websites. So it was probably around the late 90s that people could start actually like entering credit card numbers and buying things on the internet? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, Amazon was around in 95, eBay, 96, 97. So even before you wouldn't enter your credit card on it, it would be more of like a bank transaction or you would mail people thing. You know, there's all sorts of ways of of doing things even without the technologies. But by that point, you actually started to see technologies which enabled secure transactions online. I mean, that's the most important part is that when I enter my credit card, it doesn't get hijacked on the way over to the website. So, um, yeah, yeah. By the late nineties, you did start to see that. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. We take that. Most people take that kind of security for granted nowadays. I mean, we we have the concept of hacks and stuff like that, which I'll talk about later. But like the kind of being having your credit card number stolen at at the point of the transaction is something we don't more or less be we're not more or less concerned about anymore. And it reminds me, I remember explaining to one of my aunts once that you know she she wanted to buy something, and I was like, oh, you could just go online and buy it, and they'll bring it to your house. And she said, no, no, I would never put yeah. my my credit card number on the computer. And yeah. To this day, I regret explaining to her that actually, you know, your credit card number is already on computers all <laughs> over the world. That's how credit card companies work now. Uh, and and she, she, her eyes were just wide and with yeah. horror at this idea. Uh, but it is interesting that, you know, over time, um, these technologies have become that. I mean, there's so many things that have become commonplace, but in particular, secure, at least at time of transaction, use of credit cards is something that that is only about 20 years old. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I, I distinctly remember that too, like sort of starting to figure out how to buy things on the internet and, and people were being very fearful of that. And it's, yeah, it's not a concern at all anymore. Another thing that re related to the commerce that is uh, commonplace now is using the internet to do, or using the web, I should say, to do your banking. Yeah. Do you know when banks first started getting into the web? Huh. I think you just gave me a really interesting topic to explore that I really haven't. Um, I can tell you that, um, yeah, the banks, they were starting to have websites early. I mean, pre 2000, but they, there, there wasn't a concept of online banking yet. I would, I would have to think that that came post 2000, um, after the dot com bubble, um, that you started to see stuff like that. But I, I don't have a ton of details on that. 
Well, we'll look forward to yeah. or subscribe to your newsletter and everybody listening should sign up. We'll look forward to hopefully hearing about that in the future. Yeah. Um, it's such a, it's just, that's another thing that's just such a basic part of our lives now. I mean, I can manage accounts. All Anyone can manage accounts all around the world, you know, from your phone even very yeah. easily now. But there were, you know, I imagine just huge battles fought uh, against all kinds of enemies, internal and external by banks in order to make, make that a reality. Um, yeah. now that you, you mentioned the dot-com bubble. Sure. Um, so let's let's talk about that a little bit because the internet, the web, had this impact on commerce in all kinds of crazy ways that sort of became a kind of perfect storm in the late '90s. And so one one of my little hobby horses about the dot com crash that happened around 2001 that people rarely address is the opportunity for people to buy and sell stocks online became a thing. Mm-hmm. Before that, you kind of had to have a certain kind of expertise or just initiation into the process of buying and selling stocks. But all of a sudden, in the late 90s, you could sign up for an account and you could see these dynamic charts changing in real time. You didn't need your own Bloomberg terminal or anything like that. Um, And so one thing that happened was the bubble that happened around companies that, you know, at the time you just put like .com at the end of your, if you had a website that was the name of the object you were selling or the market you were selling into, all of a sudden you could have an IPO and be worth billions of dollars. It was nuts. And one of the things that drove that was online trading. Uh, I had a friend, you know, I have friends who lost tens of thousands of dollars on on various sort of schemes because they just saw everything going up and up and up until it until it went down. And of course, what that what the online trading did was it allowed company it allowed the companies to IPO, and then that just sort of became this cycle that built and built and built until it came down. I guess I'm not sure if I even really have a question to ask after, sure. after saying that, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, I guess that does. I'll let me try and transition that into another question, which is: When did it become possible to start your own web-based company without needing to buy and maintain your own servers? Right. Yeah, that was a big turning point. Um, you started to see that. Honestly, you didn't really see that until in well into the dot-com era, which is, you know, nineteen ninety-eight, nineteen ninety-nine, two thousand is when basically what happened was any company that they were called dot coms. It's literally any company that had a dot com was all of a sudden worth 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times what they would be if they were like a brick and mortar store or just like a normal agency. So you saw like digital agencies like Razorfish with, you know, 100 million, 200 million dollars worth of investment. Uh, there's a story where. Uh, there was a site called iVillage, which is a it's a community site tailored mostly for women, and it was at its peak valuation. It was valued at more than General Electric, um, which is just insane. And uh, you know the founders of the sites kind of knew that it was crazy, but what happened was there was this surge of investment, and uh, eventually there were no business models behind any of these sites and they weren't making money and they just hemorrhaged all this money. And, and that's where you get a bubble burst and, uh, you got a bit of a, a crash in, in 2001 ish. Um, so I, even at that point, one of the costs of doing business was creating your own servers and you had these in-house it people, uh, that were maintaining them for a company of, most sizes. But what you did start to see was a little bit of like time sharing networks. So these like big companies that oil companies or something like that would have these servers that would just run um, 
would, let's say, not need to run anything during the summer or they would not run anything overnight. They would actually lend out the servers for people to use. And that was like a way of, of hosting various networks and things like that. So you did start to see that. But if you were, let's say, pets.com, which is, I think, one of the most famous examples of a dot-com company, um, you definitely had like a basement full of servers or likely an off-site server uh, farm essentially. And, uh, there were people, there were plenty of people on staff that were actually tasked with just maintaining those, which is, you saw a lot of outages at that point because people didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't know what would happen if a million people visited your site in a day. So they were still kind of figuring that out. Uh, that actually leads me into the next sort of theme I'd like to cover, which is, uh, we've talked about, you know, the file formats and all the things that that's enabled. We've talked about commerce and all the various, some of the various dimensions to that, uh, one of the things the web has introduced into our lives is some bad things that yeah. we just take for granted. Um, one of which is uh, distributed denial of service attacks. Yeah. Um, do you do you recall when the, that became a phenomenon where people would basically malicious actors would deliberately flood a website with a lot of attention, essentially, in order to shut mm -hmm. it down? Yeah, I mean, to this day, I think the intentions behind it are unclear at best, right? So to overload a server to the point of taking it down, there's not really a business case for it. It really is uh, a malicious attack. So it could just be people that think it's funny, right? Which is unfortunately like a good amount of the bad that happens on the web is for that reason. Um, it could be more calculated attack, which sometimes happens as well. Um, I think you don't really start to see that. I mean, hacking goes back to computers, right? I mean, literally with basically the first computers, there were all sorts of different ways to both with good intentions and with bad intentions sort of hack computers. Um, you don't really start to see that, though, until uh, bot, you know, bots become really popular. You know, I think that's only in the last 15 years or so that people have taken the idea of making a computer literally a robot that operates on the web with malicious intent and aggregating that to, you know, the millions and billions that we that we kind of see today. So it, it, it's you're probably seeing it more now than ever. Uh, and it's something that's only very recently, maybe in the last decade, matured to the point of being very, very calculated. It's a uh, it's a really fascinating thing. So you know, yeah, hacking, hacking and things like that existed before the web, but most people got onto the internet because of because of the web right um and that's what that's the reason they got exposed to things like my, my the subject of my next question which is viruses um, yeah it's something that i think a lot of us aren't as concerned about now as we used to be uh yeah uh because you know the, for, like fortunately not only technology on the good side has advanced but also people's habits and and sort of awarenesses have improved do you recall in the in the when was the first sort of big virus that became that came into into public consciousness and perhaps i don't know, maybe to narrow it down i mean i don't expect you to be able to answer this question precisely but you know the first yeah. time there was a news headline about yep. people getting hit by a virus i can tell you one thing i've written about in the past and to me it's very interesting because it happens in the specter of Y2K which is again something I don't think people think about day to day but Y2K was this whole idea that like at the turn of the century literally on January 1st 2000 uh, because of the way that computers were programmed they were programmed with dates that only had uh, the last two digits so like 89 90 91 um, and that when 2000 turned over like that every server in the world was going to crash and banks were going to lose all of our money and uh, nukes were going to 
our launch, you know, and, and nothing happened. Um, I think there was like two reported instances of like a, uh, you know, a gas pump malfunctioning, <laughs> something like that. Um, but that one create, I mean, that was all over the press. Right. And then, uh, I want to say a few months later, right. We got something that was called uh, the, I love you virus. Um, and it's fascinating to me because the viruses themselves aren't all that technically uh, advanced, right? Their, their goal is to get you to download them. And when you download them, they do something pretty simple. With the I love you virus, the kind of the reason that it spread and it really did spread was because it was bundled in an email that said, I love you, right? That was the subject line. And that preyed on people's natural inclinations and instincts and kind of curiosity. And it was self-replicating. So what it did was it would invade your computer. So you would download it. It would invade your computer. It would start, uh, I think, duplicating or removing all the files on your computer. Um, and then it would go to your contact list and it would send that exact same email to everybody that you had stored on your computer and that would spread and spread and spread. And it, it, sh I mean, government agencies had to shut down because all of a sudden 30% of the computers in there, uh, you know, in the agency were, that had downloaded this virus. Um, I think the that remains true of hacking today in that the, the most elaborate hacking techniques have very little to do with like technical proficiency and much more to do with what's known, I think these days is like social engineering, which is how can we prey on people's uh, human side in order to trick them into, uh, into to downloading or, or getting a virus. Yeah. Speaking of the human side and email, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, one thing to, to this day, my parents, I'm going to pick on my parents a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I, I love them very much. Um, they have a landline telephone and wow. they will answer it whenever it goes off. And I, I, I sort of kind of find it both cute and kind of interesting at the same time, because it's a, that's a remnant. That behavior is a remnant of a time when if you missed a phone call, you really missed it. Um, yeah. and so there was a sort of there was something very kind of, you, you really needed to answer the phone when it went off, usually, basically. Um, and also, you knew that on the other end of the line was a human being who knew your number, who was calling you. And so when they get a communication from someone that way, they just assume there's a real person on the other end of it. And when email came out, people related to email the same way. If you got an email from in your inbox, you know, that said, I love you, that said anything, business opportunity, you, re you might not have been naive about like the content of it, but most people just naturally related to it. Like this is a person who knows me, who's a real human being, who's contacting me specifically. Uh, and so my specific question on that, on that is, yeah. do you remember or do you know when the Nigerian prince scam huh. emerged? I don't. Which is something people I can't, I, yeah. Yeah, no, I can't tell you an exact date on that, unfortunately. Um, I can tell you email spam predates the web, actually. The first incident of email spam, because email also predates the web by nearly a decade. Um, so one of the uh, this guy actually got in a lot of trouble. It was still a small community of like internet people. And he was like throwing a party essentially, but like a, a networking event. And he spammed everybody and that was like the first you know everybody that he could get his hands on email got this like random email and it was actually it was a break in trust and it was 
people were still operating under the landline assumption of, you know, if I get an email, it's because you know my email and this is a this is a correspondence between just the two of us. It's not there wasn't an expectation that you would get something like a newsletter, uh, for instance, or, you know, in his case, like a, a spam. So he got banned from a whole lot of mailing lists and things like that for, for trying something like that. Um, but obviously we couldn't curb the tide. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure when that stuff started, but I can tell you that uh, with every technology, uh, spam is early. It's always early. People are trying to figure that stuff out. Uh, another bad thing that we're accustomed to in our day-to-day -day lives now is online shaming. Yeah. Um, you know, shaming, of course, is nothing new. But the ability to, say, send out a tweet and get on an airplane and then get off the plane and realize your life's been ruined is something that we all witness, you know, almost on a daily basis now. Do you have any idea of when that that became a thing? You know, I, I, I just I, I know it's I know these questions I'm throwing at you are actually quite, quite random. From my perspective, so thank you for being <laughs> yeah. so game. But, you know, there, yeah. there are examples of things that would happen like in offices, emails would start going around where someone had written, say, a cruel email or a stupid email or just said something. dumb, yeah. And then those would leak out of the company that they originated in. And then suddenly everyone around the world would be like, oh, my God, you know, look at what this person did. Um, yeah. Do you have any idea about about when that became a phenomenon? So, I, you know, on a, on a personal note, I'd say this is to me, it's it's one of the biggest failures of the Web is that behavior like that. And, and to be honest, like the shaming is probably the the least, uh, you know, let's say abusive or, or harmful version of that. But, the, you know, there's a few other kind of um, things that are done on the Web that that stem from that. And I think what happened was. Early on, and even pre-web, there was this sense that in a community, there was layers of protection. And one of those layers, for instance, was that everyone was anonymous, which I think is really funny because I think on Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, there's this assumption that if everybody was anonymous, we'd be all spamming each other all the time and that there'd be like all this um, – you know, there'd be a lot of this abusive behavior, which, by the way, we see plenty of anyway. Um, but actually, an, uh, you know, being anonymous was also a defense mechanism, right? It allowed you, like, I couldn't, if I tweeted something out, you couldn't then find my address, right, and send a SWAT team, for instance, um, or, or something like that. So there was, there, you could come out with your identity if that was something that you were comfortable doing, but you could also hide behind this kind of veil of anonymity. Um, there was also uh, this idea that growth and community should be small, that growth should be deliberate, and that um, every person should be protected and feel safe and that banning wasn't like a it wasn't you know banning somebody from the community because they were being harmful to it wasn't seen as like a violation of free speech it was seen as a way of protecting the community um, from bad actors essentially and you know starting with the dot-com era and, and continuing on for your until today the goal shifted so your goal became not how can I foster a community that feels uh, safe and inclusive and big, but, you know, perhaps not for everybody, right? Uh, and some of the earliest social media sites um, like Black Planet and Asian Avenue were actually tailored for certain communities for people of color um, specifically. And then you got Facebook and MySpace and a few fr uh, Friendster sort of started 
the trend and the idea became, how can we get everybody? I want everybody in the world to be on my network. And what that did was uh, it made it impossible to to control and to moderate and to um, uh, to anybody can join, right? Anybody can come in and the mechanisms for creating an account became so simple, right? There was no, you didn't have to pay, you didn't have to do anything, you just need an email address. It became so simple that creating fake accounts became possible and um, creating pseudo-anonymous accounts. So now the bad people can hide behind an, uh, you know, anonymity, but the, the people that are trying to protect themselves cannot, for instance. Um, so you started to... You started to see that shift, I think, in the mid 2000s with the this sort of, uh, you know, this idea that the goal of every website should be, how can I reach a billion people? How can I reach more than a billion people? Rather than, you know, how can I keep people on my site? How can I create an engaging and, and thoughtful and and sustainable community? Um, I think it's it, it's it's unfortunate. I, I, I don't think it's the fault of any one site or any one person or any one moment in time. It's just uh, the com- the general commercialization of the web made that inevitable, right? Because the idea was if you can get lots of people, you can get lots of money. And that's mostly bore out to be true. Um, bottom line is, though, you can run a website for at this point, you know, I don't know. I mean, I you know, I, you can run a website for $100, you know, a year, let's say. And... So I don't know why you need a billion dollars a year in revenue in order to run a community. You really don't. Um, but that became the goal. And, and I think attitudes started to shift. Yeah, that um, I think I'm uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to ask you about the huge issue of public, the public and the private. And, yeah. And the way that's changed our lives online. But before perhaps moving on, um, I wanted to ask you about another what I'll characterize as a negative thing about. Uh, the web that touches on what you just talked about, which is in order to get and keep a billion people on your site, companies deploy constantly methods of fucking with you. Yeah. It's just like, and I'm going to pick specifically on Facebook here. Sure. Facebook is a company comprised of people fucking with you. They're given an assignment. They're like increase... The number of of interactions with this part of Facebook, and when you when you open it up, particularly on the web, and you look at it, you just if you understand what's going on behind it, it's like behind each little part of the hundred and fifty ways of interacting with that website uh, is a one or two, maybe even more, or often more people who are just sitting around all day being monitored by the company itself for the mm-hmm. you know the the, the results of their actions and fucking with you. And so mm-hmm. just, you know, and I'm going to get a little bit mad here because it it, yeah. it it really does impact our lives. And so, for example, Facebook used to be one thing on your phone. Then it became two, Facebook and Messenger. And I turned off notifications for Facebook because they're useless. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're just there to kind of hit, hit me and make me click on something. But I kept Messenger notifications because at least I knew that was a human being trying to communicate with me. And then one day, not too long ago, all of a sudden I got essentially a Facebook notification, like through Messenger notifications saying you've been friends with so-and-so mm-hmm. for 10 years. Um, is there anything, is there any way forward that you can see <laughs> on this on this general topic of what you're saying, like the companies don't need to be doing what they're doing to actually run good communities. But at the same time, they're extremely successful and a lot of people spend all day on them. Yeah. So I hear anger in your voice. I think you're not alone. Um, it makes me angry. I think it makes a lot of the 
creators of the web. It makes a lot of the people that understand what's going on and even a lot of people. And that number, by the way, of people that do understand what's going on, it's increasing every day. Um, but it, it makes a lot of people angry. I think I could say a few things about it. One is that there's a competing theories on this, which is that have we entered a time when the biggest internet companies of today, Facebook, Google, Amazon, et cetera, are now institutions, um, kind of like General Electric or, uh, you know, just behemoth companies that, let's say, aren't going away for the next hundred years? Or is it possible that uh, we can enter a time when there is no Facebook anymore, when literally the tide shifts to a point? I mean, it happens all the time on the web. It, it literally happens every five to 10 years where there's just a seismic shift and something different comes around. Um, I don't know if that's possible, right? Because uh, we've entered a phase where it's kind of, it's a given. It's a given that like you have a Facebook account. It's essentially like having an ID, right? It, it, it works and operates in, in a similar way and they know that um, and they are preying on that for sure. But I, I optimistically like to imagine a day in which that whole paradigm is upended, right? I, I think there's this idea that they'll be around for the next 50 years, let's say, um, but there's no proof of that. I mean, we're 30 years into the web. There's no way to tell what the next step might be. There's an entire new generation that understands the dangers that come with everybody being on the same place in a way that our generation just doesn't understand. Um, and they're going to build solutions that accommodate that. And you're starting to see that, um, unfortunately, with the same old business models. But there's going to be hackers of a new generation that are, that are I, and again, this is, my, this is my optimism speaking. There are plenty of people that are, say that I would, and much smarter than me, that are saying I'm wrong. But um, I like to think that um, that we'll start to see people use the web to create more open, more inclusive, uh, less centralized tools uh, that enable maybe a more fractured landscape, but certainly, uh, you know, a, I guess a, just a better one. So um, I think if we stay on the path we're on right now, we're it's only going to get worse. And it is going to get worse. I mean, there's just no, there's no question of that. Um, it's getting worse all the time. Um, but I like to be optimistic and think that uh, we it's overturnable. Maybe moving on to a, a lighter yeah. subject for the next, because there is so much, There's it's, it's sort of easy to get lost, but there's so much fun on sure. the internet as well. We talked a little bit, we touched on it earlier, but I'd like to talk about things that are gone now and things that we have now. Uh, yeah. and, and I, things that are gone now, I mean, in a sort of spirit of nostalgia. Um, yeah. So, and I, I guess I'm mostly referencing the developed world here, but that even that's not so true anymore. Uh, what were internet cafes and when did, <laughs> when did they get started? So this is things, uh, things that are gone now. Yeah. I, so the exact time, I'd actually have to check my website, but it's I, I did write a story about internet cafes. They're fascinating to me. Um, they got started. They really didn't get started until the web got started, even though technically – they weren't constrained to just the web. So there's a lot of like internet cafes, for instance, that are tailored towards internet games, even early on or internet chat rooms. Um, what was kind of really interesting was that 
I mean, so internet access in the early days was not like it is today, where it's like a very, very, I mean, it's fairly low, at least in the United States, it's fairly low monthly fee, gets you connected to the web. And and obviously, it's on our phones and things like that. But getting connected was not as simple um, in the early days. And so these internet cafes took that idea, and they basically made the internet in the web available to everybody and you could just come in and you would basically pay by the hour and just like do whatever you wanted on the internet. But they actually became these like centers of social activity. Uh, so you started to see like early versions of what, what are now basically meetups where people would meet every week and just like chat or you started to see uh, kind of people come together around different technologies or like create new projects inside of these cafes. I mean, it, it's interesting because we're incredibly social these days on the web and yet we don't really have a community anymore. And just literally being in the same physical space created that. And there's these, there's this fascinating component of it, which I wrote about, which is that uh, there used to be these webcams and they would put them in the internet cafes. Right. And then, so when you were away from the internet cafe, you can sit and you can watch like, what was going on in your internet cafe of choice, right? And you literally just like sign on to the internet in order to get a window into your internet life that was, you know, in many ways physical and social. So um, they don't, I mean, they're actually still very, very popular and they're, they're a little bit different, but they are still very popular in, in, in Korea, for instance. Um, but uh, you don't really see them these days in, in the U.S. Or, or Europe. One of the things that we have now is memes. Yeah. Um, can you can you recall what some of the one, one or two of the first uh, memes were? I think yeah. one might have been the Dancing Baby. Yeah, Dancing Baby was really early on. Uh, it was a... It was an animation experiment. Uh, if any, if anybody doesn't remember it, uh, it's literally a Dancing Baby it was on Ally McBeal. It was like a big deal. Um... There were, I think there were a bunch of sites that were meme factories and that's not, was their goal, right? But uh, there's sites like DeviantArt and Newgrounds that were all about creating like these, these kind of spreadable viral content, which is really just for fun, especially in the beginning. And that, you know, the nice thing about memes is they've kind of retained that. I mean, there are some, there's ways to weaponize, I think, memes, but in general, it's still just like a way of having fun on the internet. It like requires... In order to understand a meme, it requires a sort of inside baseball knowledge of a lot of different things simultaneously, which is just endlessly fascinating, I think. And um, that was true even in the early days. So there was these like fun games or just short videos and things like that, that it was the kind of thing that's like I get, my parents don't get, and that's why it's cool. And I think that's that continues to be true. Uh, one thing we don't have anymore is video stores, uh, more, yeah. more or less. Um, do you have any thoughts about what at what point the sort of tipping point came? Um, recently, I think more recently than 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 you might think. Um, I think obviously with you know now with Netflix and Hulu and all sorts of streaming platforms, we've been able to move things online. It was only in the last five years or so that even we had like the broadband capacity in order to to do that i mean it's a crazy number of data that netflix alone is exchanging every day through the pipes of the internet um so yeah i mean there were 
lots of experiments with it. I mean, one of Microsoft's earliest experiments was to create like an online news channel, essentially. Like they wanted to create these little videos online and that actually eventually became MSNBC, like the cable channel, uh, which is Microsoft NBC. Um, MSN was their network. Uh, so everybody that tried in like the nineties and early to mid two thousands was just ahead of time, ahead of their time. And it just didn't take off. So there were experiments, but, um, I think we only just got there recently. One of the things that we do have now is, uh, easy, truly working and dependable video calling. Yeah. Um, do you have any sense of when that became, when we turned the corner on that? Because it, it, that also seems to me to, to be actually more recent than it might yeah because it's just so robust now if i have a sense of it it's really only because like i've been doing video calls for the last decade and i remember what it was like at the beginning and there were like dropouts and it was really fuzzy and there's a lot to deal with um uh yeah so i you know again i think that the issues here are mostly with like just bandwidth and just uh you know the infrastructure part is something that I'm aware of. I don't have like a lot of knowledge about, so I can't speak too, too much about it. Going back to big, serious things, um, <laughs> for the next part of the interview, the theme I'd like to talk about is government. Um, mm -hmm. You brought up uh, earlier on that governments got involved with the web when Microsoft started including Internet Explorer for free yeah. with its operating system. Now, of course, governments have been involved since the beginning. Uh, the Internet itself was a, a government project. Um, the web came from CERN, which was you know, funded by various governments itself. But do you have a sense of when governments first started seeing the web as something to regulate? Yeah, I mean, one of the earliest examples of regulation I mean, this, the Microsoft case is, is an early attempt at that, although it was really more focused on whether or not Microsoft was becoming a monopoly, whether, you know, and it was, it was an antitrust suit, which uh, Microsoft won, um, kind of. <laughs> but uh, one of the earliest, um, you know, sort of attempts to regulate was a law. It was called, uh, it's called COPA, uh, Children's Online Protection Act, and it's basically a way to ensure that when children are online and viewing things, we're not collecting data about them. And there's a lot more rules. And actually, I have some experience with this after you know working at Sesame Street. There are a lot more rules when you're building a website that's tailored for children that you can get fined or, or you can get your site taken down if you don't follow them uh, than there are for building a site for adults. Um, that was in the uh, late nineties, you started to see that. Um, and then more recently you've seen a lot more maybe going the other way, uh, things like SOPA, uh, which sort of attempt to regulate what can and can't be on the web, which it's a tricky territory, right? Because you do want to protect people's intellectual property to the extent that you believe in a concept like that. Um, but you also want to be, you know, the web is a decentralized open platform and, and to sort of infringe on that is to, to threaten its very existence. So it's been interesting because I think we're in a period of time right now when when there's a lot of people that would welcome government intervention, myself included, in, in terms of especially in issues related to privacy and things. Um, but there is uh, there's a there's a government moves slow and the internet moves fast and there's a lot of misunderstanding about how the internet works and, and I think we just need to be careful about about what, what goes on there. 
Yeah, well, well, that's interesting. While preparing for this podcast, I listened to another podcast, one that was published recently, Two Girls, One Podcast. Um, it's a really good episode. And uh, in that episode, you talk about being a supporter of GDPR. Yeah, the general data protection regulation that was sort of big news around mid 2018, if I recall. I, I might actually have yeah. a whole year wrong, yep. but um, I, I I had to become formally sort of chief data protection officer. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure that affected LeanPub, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and I wanted to ask you, what what is it about? I mean, there are lots of there are lots of complexities around it, but what what is it about it? Gen- if you could speak at a general level that you that you're in favor of. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the most important part about GDPR, never mind the, let's say, execution of it, is that um, it puts users back in control of their data. So if my data is up on a site, um, I can request to have that data removed completely. Like if I can, I, I should be able to tell Facebook, like, I don't want you to have any any of my activity, any of my friends, nothing I've ever done. I want you to delete it from your servers. It offers really, really intense technical challenges because it's not something people have thought about. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm massively in favor of giving people the mechanisms needed in order to uh, in order to have some control over how their data is being propagated and used across these massive advertising networks and uh, social networks. I think if you take that and you combine it with uh, digital literacy and, and education, then you start to have a much more informed uh, consumer and just uh, you start to have people that sort of take control of of, uh, of their digital lives a little bit. And I think that it, in the long run, it can help solve solve some of these privacy issues like ahead of time. Yeah, it's really it's a really fascinating issue uh, that, that you touched on there, the way the way that it's meant to give people a sense of control over what's happening to them in their lives. And I think this is somewhat related to my rant about being fucked with earlier. But, you know, I remember not too long ago, uh, I moved to a new city and I found a place to buy cookware uh, mm-hmm. and I gave them my email address. And when I got home and fired up Google, uh, there was cookware advertisements in my search results for so many stories like that, that right? Yeah. Um, and, and I really felt fucked with. Uh, yeah. And, and although there are many things about particularly, as you say, about the execution of GDPR and the communication to the public about it that may have been imperfect, it yes. was in large, in many ways, it was a response to the fact that, you know, people were feeling like, oh, it's not just something, it's not just happening on the, on the web anymore. It's like I go to a store and yes. something I do there has an impact on, like verbally, something mm-hmm. I do there then has an impact on, on my life. So on that note, and you brought up copyright earlier, one of the yeah. one of the controversies of the past year around the web was something called Article 13 in the EU's Copyright Directive. Um, yeah, is that something you 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 followed and that you have? A Not really, but um, if please explain it to me because well, it sounds yes. Yeah, yeah. so, so the 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 controversy was that the that Article 13 for the purpose of protecting copyright might actually force everyone in the world on the inter- on the in- well using the internet would have to place a filter on anything they upload to it essentially mm-hmm. and this would this would be not just the internet not just the web it would be anything you're putting out there should go through a filter to check to see if it contains copyrighted mm-hmm. material and, yeah. and that that to me brings up this is this is a bit bit of a digression i suppose but you know this is an old old battle between yeah. companies that own intellectual property and people who want to 
listen to music or watch movies or do make memes and things like that. And I remember, if I don't think this is a mis- uh, an invented memory, there was a time when th- when inst- organizations that represent people who own intellectual property wanted to install in your in all computers software that would look at what you're doing and prevent you from hmm. doing things that they didn't want you to do. So for an example would be if you're running video installed like in the hardware is yeah. something that, you know, allows that 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 can check to see if you're looking at something that's been pirated. Um mm-hmm. so is 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 this is this do you see this battle uh, continuing I suppose would be one oh, yeah. asking that question. So I I mean I can tell you one of the, the hotly contested debates of now uh is the W3C, which is the organization that sort of regulates and maintains the standards of the web, and not in a, not in a formal way, like they can't force anybody to do anything, but they it's a way for a bunch of browsers and websites and stakeholders to get together and like basically talk about the future of the web. And um, one of the things that they're debating right now is whether or not to introduce DRM uh, into the web. Right. So right now, when you view something on like Netflix or Hulu, they're using all this like weird proprietary technology as a way of preventing you, the consumer, from downloading that or like kind of, you know, taking that. And um, there's a lot of opinions on both sides. I, I personally, I mean, if I'm just going to like throw my opinion out, I'm, I'm, I'm a WordPress developer. I believe very deeply in open source and creative commons and, and sort of uh, open content like that. I think DRM would... Uh, it would endanger the web in ways that maybe we don't see right now. Um, I think if you're interested in opinions about that in particular, I think Cory Doctorow is probably the person talking about it the most these days. Um, all of which is to say that yes <laughs> is the answer. Uh, this is going to be a question. I think it's taken it's taken a backseat for a little while because there's there's these much larger issues going on with the web and, and the internet in general uh, that are kind of being debated in, in public in public spaces. But eventually we'll come back to this DRM question and, and just copyright in general and, and how how you know how copyright and, and intellectual property is is managed online. Yeah, there's a really interesting example I like to bring up when having this argument. Uh, you know, my opinion, just you know, to throw it out there, is that you know I think basically I'm very much against DRM uh, yeah. in, in all circumstances. Um, yes. The analogy I like to use is: imagine if every parcel you sent, or in the olden days, you know, paper letter that you sent were inspected to see right. if there was something copyrighted in there that you hadn't paid for. Nobody, nobody, except maybe the, you know, Motion Picture Association, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. would, 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 would approve of something like that because we understand the implications of having everything we do inspected in that way in the physical realm. Yeah. But there's something about, there's a lingering th- sense that I think, and I think this is, a, I'm going to make maybe a controversial claim, this really is a deep generational thing where it's, some people just relate to what happens on the computer like it's not real in the way other things are real. Yes. And it doesn't yes. matter in the way that other things matter. And this manifests itself in things like, you know, senators in the United States who boast about being unable to email. Yes. Um, I think, yeah, it, there, there is a weird concept. It, 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 I think it started because you really used to have this whole – you would talk about your digital life with like wonderment and amazement. Like I have this fantastic digital life. And I think over time that wonder 
faded away, but there is still this idea that there's a digital life and there's a real life, and that's a concept that continues to this day. Um, if you, you know, I think sometimes I'll talk to, you know, uh, let's say my parents or my in-laws, um, and uh, they'll be like, well, why, you know, why are they putting these stupid pictures on the internet or, or why are you putting your business out there kind of thing? And I'm, you know, me, people I know, like our whole generation, and honestly, the generation under me is even, even, I guess, worse, you would say, right? Um, but uh, the concept, I think, is is interesting because we, I understand privacy and public, the idea of public and private in a way that my parents didn't and the, the generation under me understands public and private in a way that I don't. And I, there's this kind of sense that... Um, uh, that everything is public by default and it's not, it's, it's because our digital lives are our real lives. So everything in our real lives emanates out into the digital world and becomes public and you should operate accordingly. Basically. Um, I wrote, um, I wrote recently about, uh, Dana Boyd, the researcher, uh, she currently works, I believe at Microsoft, but she's done research for the last 20 years on the web and, and the internet and all sorts of uh, interesting things. I highly recommend just checking out anything by fire. Um, but she has this concept of super publics, which is, which is really the idea that when we say something online right now, we are saying it always, you know, we are saying it for forever in the future. We are saying it to everybody simultaneously at once. And obviously in practice, that's not necessarily true, but theoretically it is. And there's all sorts of techniques that the younger generation is developing. Um, I think one of the memes is a really interesting example of this. It's like a way of communicating with one another um, in a way that is coded to the extent that like people actually can't understand it unless they're in on the reference. Um, if you ever watch like a, you know, a, a teenager use Snapchat, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's basically they're communicating in a way that is foreign it's it i think dana boy refers to it as social stenography which is this idea that like you can it's coded it's it's essentially coded for just the generation um you're going to start to see more of that i think you're going to start to obviously digital natives are now in their 30s and 40s so um yeah you're just going to start to see that concept of public i think and private shift and that's why you know i said before i'm very hopeful about about what could be done once that's kind of just like a foregone conclusion. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I read that that great post that you wrote uh, and I'll definitely link to it uh in the transcription for this for this interview. Um yeah. It leads me to try and touch on something I guess might be a good way to to end this part of the interview. Um yeah. which is this idea that there's no distinction between public and private for let's say, you know, people born in the last 20 years or so uh, in the way that there used to be in the past. And so one one thing you write about, for example, is the fact that anything you do online can be screenshotted, for example. Right. This, this became a, a sort of, you know, Colbert report joke when he was interviewing <laughs> the founders of Snapchat where they're like, yeah, it disappears. And he's like, yeah. can anybody just take a screenshot of it? And they were both like, if I remember correctly, I might be inventing this, but like, you know, they both kind of <laughs> went, went red and were like, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but 
you know, there's a, there's a, you know, a, a saying in sort of business and publicity as well that like, don't ever send an email that you don't want the whole world to see, because it, even if it, it's somehow in a network where it can't be forwarded out of there, uh, it can be shared with anyone else in that network and uh, it can be screenshotted and then that can be spread around. And if it's believable, people will believe it. Yeah. Or even, even if they, you know, it's not believable, some people will believe it. And this, this might seem like an odd thing to bring up, but it reminded me of a story I was told by uh, someone in DC who just had a, a a child born and they'd been looking into schools and one of the schools they looked at uh, gave all the kids iPads and one of the things that the kids did with the iPads was record themselves giving reports so that they <laughs> could then watch themselves afterwards and then refine their performance. That's interesting. Yeah. And I just think like there's that. a really interesting shift that's happened and this is very recent that this reality that we've faced about the lack of a distinct the, the the sort of possibility of anything you do online becoming public at some point at some point like instantly which is one kind of danger or like 20 yeah. years later which is another kind of danger this is actually now true in public as well because anything you do could be recorded either by a camera that's like fixed to a building or that's being held by a person um so do do you see, are you optimistic about the new gen, like, let's say the new yes. gener generation dealing with that issue? My short answer is yes. Right. And I, there's, I don't want to speak about things that like, I necessarily don't have a lot of like expertise on. Right. But, um, I think it's a net positive. I think this idea that everything is public is exposing a lot of things, which is why we're starting to see, I mean, it's one of the reasons we're starting to see movements around, you know, sort of upending old social orders and, and exposing people for who they truly are and things like that. So I think ultimately that that part of it is a, is a net positive. I also think I, I am always optimistic about the social aspects. I think there's a lot of this idea of like get off your computer, get off your phone and go outside, which – you know, let's say, uh, from like a biological perspective, I guess does make sense. Right. I mean, you can't just sit on the couch all day, but I do think that there's that that's a misunderstanding of the current mode of, of how people operate in that, in that our social lives are very much online and that you're starting to see kids, um, you know, kid, like younger kids and teenagers and, and just people, uh, that are experimenting and opening up their eyes to new perspectives, like really early on. I mean, reaching out to communities and understanding the world in a way that, um, you know, maybe they wouldn't even get a chance to do until college or later normally. Um, and so they start, they're, they're importantly talking to people that aren't like them with perspectives that aren't like theirs and um, trying things out, um, not being feeling constrained by the way that things currently operate. So I think in that sense, that that part is a net positive. Obviously, there's there's plenty of negatives that come with it. And I think those are being well covered and, and we need to think about them constructively. But, I, you know, I like to remain optimistic about it. I'm going to take the opportunity on that somewhat op optimistic note to, <laughs> to move on to the next part of the, the last sure, part of yeah. the interview. Um, I would like to say there there are lots of things I brought up. Let's we'll be talking about later in this interview that we didn't get to touch on. One of those uh, was publishing, um, mm -hmm. uh, but your book is called you know the history of the web volume one. So maybe we'll have yeah. a chance to to have another uh, interview and cover those topics uh, when yeah. when your second volume comes out. Um, but yeah, for the last part of the interview, um, when I'm interviewing a lean pub author, uh, I always like to talk to them about their 
experience self-publishing a little bit because quite a yeah. few of the listeners to this podcast are authors themselves or people who are considering publishing books. Uh, so I guess my first question is, uh, why did you choose to publish your book on LeanPub? Yeah, so um, so I, I've been thinking about doing kind of an ebook for a little while, um, and it's something that I, I've had requested from me from a few different people, uh, and so I, you know I've thought about it. I've been giving away this content for free for the last two years, and I did want to make it available to people, but I think I've also been asked like, how can I support you? You know, people like to throw. Uh, me, uh, you know, a few dollars or just kind of show that they are very interested or, or they want me to keep going with it. And I, it's my promise. I will be keeping going with it for, for a while. Um, but, uh, I researched a few different things and then, you know, for me, the biggest, the biggest draw to lean pub was, um, a, like, the ability to kind of set a price so that people, if they wanted to, like I've had a few people that contributed because they're really just contributing to me in the ongoing project rather than, you know, and the ebook is a very nice keepsake. It's a, it's a way for them to, uh, you know, to hold on to that content and kind of read it independent of their email inbox. Um, so that was, that was one draw on the other being that, it's one. It's the only tool I found ebook publishing wise that basically allows you to take massive quantities from a blog and convert it into an ebook really simply. And then, you know, again, I'm very much in favor of openness and things like that. So I like that there's this like I can just download my files. There's no like it's not like I mean, if I published on Amazon, for instance, like that would be locked into their sort of network. So mixture reasons, I guess. Yeah. Speaking of openness, actually, that reminds me, there was just an, an article that I read yesterday. I think it might have been published yesterday on Vox uh, about a little mini scandal in the book publishing world that's going on right now, where uh, someone well known in journalism uh, had a book come out, or at least had, had early drafts of a book circulated that appeared to have a lot of errors in it factual mm -hmm. errors in it. And this article on Vox is about the fact that the conventional publishing workflow more or less leaves fact-checking to the author. Uh, okay. And if, yeah. if they have a staff, perhaps some someone in the publishing company. Now, yeah. one of the interesting things is that that would seem to imply for a self-published author that, oh no, you're, you're doubly screwed because you don't even have the, the veneer or the possibility of, of a sort of a team fact-checking you. Yeah. But the thing yeah. about, about LeanPub in particular is that it's, you know, not just a technology, it's also a publishing workflow philosophy and it's it's got a built-in uh, because because you can easily update things and because you can publish in progress the fact checking happens organically as you reach out to your audience is that something that you've experienced so like fact checking for me is extremely important so every single one of my entries has a list of sources um whenever possible i literally try to verify it with people that like live the experience that i'm discussing um yeah, so it's it's important to me generally. I think with LeanPub, what was nice for me was I can basically converted my blog into Markdown files, which gave me like a, another. It gave me a uh, a way to go through everything once again. I was able to like actually find a few things and clean up a few things, and I managed to rearrange the order of things as well to make it chronological, which is not how I do the newsletter. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think. Being able to, I think for me, being able to like quickly preview things was, was massive. You know, I just like generated a PDF and checked it out. Um, and, 
yeah, so it gave me a chance to review, and uh, it's something that I'm obsessed about anyway. And have readers have readers contacted you with, <laughs> with errors that they found? I sure, is, is the most direct thing. Yeah, that... uh, it's the web. I've yeah. been so fortunate because I have been contacted many, many times, never with malicious intent, never sort of in a patronizing way, always helpful. Um, I've I have a friend that basically. Twitter messages me every few weeks with typos. So then it ranges from that to, you know, people that are like, Hey, I lived what you just talked about and you got this a little bit wrong. And, uh, so I always go back and kind of fix those up. Um, and I've managed to have great conversations from those. So I encourage it always. It's, yeah, it's great to hear you say that. I mean, that, that is consistent with what we've heard over the years from, from a lot of different authors in a lot of different areas. You know, I mean, one of the, one of the sort of, uh, canonical types of books to be published on LeanPub is programming books. And if someone's mm -hmm. got some code snippet in there that actually doesn't work anymore or didn't work at all, uh, people, readers love they not only love contacting authors and hearing back from authors, they love helping make the book books better. And uh, they particularly love seeing a change that they pointed out <laughs> sure. uh, made made to the actual book. And it's something that I think a lot of people are actually quite, they're a little bit scared when they publish something that like they're going to oh. get this negativity. They're going to get negative yeah. interactions, patronizing interactions, attacks. And, you know, I can, can't make any guarantees, but for the most part, uh, that's not the experience that, that authors have. Uh, their, their audience yeah. is comprised of people who are interested in what they're writing and in who they are and in, in helping them and in helping improve uh, their books. I will say, like, for me, I've been, I have been terrified on occasions uh, for various reasons. Maybe I'm inserting my opinion and, I, you know, it's a controversial one or maybe it's just, like, it's something that... Uh, it's something that's not talked about a lot. I'm worried about getting it wrong. Um, for me, getting feedback from readers has actually helped with that because it makes it, it's like somebody's checking me and I like that. Like I like that. Um, you know, somebody's going to call me on it and I'm going to, I have it, I'm on the web. I get to change it. And that's actually, you know, I'm talking about lean pub. That's another nice thing is like, I can always issue a correction and send out an email to all my readers and be like, sorry, you know, I'm very sorry, but it's updated now. And, and you can kind of get the, the newest version here. Uh, the last question I like to ask on this podcast is if there was anything we could build for you or anything we yeah. could fix for you, is there anything that comes to mind? So, yeah, um, I feel like, Early on, there was a, I think there is a way to sort of import directly from WordPress. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I do remember like not having a good experience with that. And I basically like, I'm a programmer. So I, I created a script that converted all of my posts to um, Markdown and, and just kind of did it that way. But um, yeah, like having a way to, I, 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 programmatically, I understand how complicated it is, but to like crawl a site and, and pick which articles you want and possibly even rearrange them and just like import them that way. That would be kind of a dream, I think. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much for that. Um, it's, it's, uh, not exactly flashbacks that it's inspiring me or, uh, but, um, uh, lean pub actually started out as a, a blog to book service. Okay. Uh, the yeah. First, the first book was startup lessons learned by Eric Reese from Eric Reese's, uh, pre, -lean, pre lean startup days. Um, yeah. and, uh, and yeah, so it, we, we, 
importing from blogs is actually not something that we've touched in a long time because uh, we've sort of just become focused over the years on building other other tools. But uh, I'll definitely uh, communicate to the team that this is an area <laughs> that now now is, is maybe has a few cobwebs around it that we that we might want to improve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much, Jay, for taking the time to do this interview and for your, your amazing newsletter and for your book. Uh, yeah. And yeah, all the, all the best for a great uh, 2019. Great. Thanks for having me. And it was a blast. Thanks very much.